3: Is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views
4: expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
5: Richard! Richard!
4: Oh, are we on?
5: Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960
4: AM. Welcome to Radio Free Canada news and notes from the underground for wednesday october 27th 2021 and just a reminder this program was pre-recorded earlier today and i will continue to pre-record while i'm away in greece returning to canada november the 9th and then live programs will return from my home studio in thornhill on november the 11th god willing Tomorrow is a national holiday here in Greece. October 28th is called Ochi Day. Ochi is Greek for no. Imagine a national holiday based on one simple word no. It's one of the most important bank holidays in Greece, and all Greeks celebrate it proudly. Tomorrow, all of the schools, the stores, and most public services are closed. The entire country is in a, a festive mood. So what is Ohi Day commemorating? In 1940, during World War II, the Italians under Mussolini and allies of Nazi Germany sent an ultimatum to the Greek Prime Minister, Yanis Metaxas. The message read, Capitulate, or Italy will invade the country. Giannis Metaxas' now famous response was powerful, clear, and simple. One word, Ohi. In other words, no. Greece will not capitulate. Greece will not cower, will not bend a knee. Greece chooses to fight. Greeks refused to surrender to fascists. That was the day when Greece officially entered the war and coordinated attacks from the Italian Axis powers began. The Greek army fought bravely against the enemy. Many Greeks lost their lives in these battles, but they managed to keep the invading Italian forces from gaining a foothold. In Greek territory irritated by the failure of his Italian allies Hitler ordered German forces to attack and the German army crossed the borders of Greece in April of 1941 the German invasion and occupation that followed was a horrible period of Greek history many people died of famine inflation destroyed the country's economy and the entire Greek Jewish community was taken away to concentration camps Despite the humiliation of everyday life for Greeks, the resistance efforts never dwindled. And finally, in the autumn of 1944, after more than four years of long battles, the Germans withdrew from Greece and their country, and Greece was free again. And to this day, this one simple word, ohi, remains a powerful reminder of what it means to be Greek, what it means to sacrifice and suffer and resist tomorrow, all around the globe, Greeks will celebrate and honor the deceased as they would have if they were in their homeland. A week before Ohi Day, people decorate their homes and cities by hanging Greek flags from their balconies and the streets and the squares. The first part of the celebration is going to church. As a religious society, Greece has connected all of the major highlights of its history with religion and church. And on Ohi Day, the Christian Orthodox Church celebrates the Holy Veil of the Virgin Mary. Originally, the day dedicated to the celebration was the 1st of October, but Greeks decided to celebrate it the same day as Ohi Day because, according to the faithful, the Virgin Mary helped the soldiers in World War II fight the enemy and liberate the country. I wish we had an Ohi Day in Canada. I wish we Canadians would start saying no or Ohi a lot more. Today in Canada, we're not facing Italian invaders or the German army. And no, our real enemy is not an invisible virus. Our enemies are the people who are using this pandemic for profit and for control. And like Mussolini, the enemies of freedom and human dignity want us to take a knee, to cower, to submit, to surrender. Let's make tomorrow our Ohi Day. In fact, why wait until tomorrow? Let's make today. Our ohi day, and the next, and the next, and the next. Ohi no, ohi to allowing the state to abuse our children with cruel and damaging mask mandates. Ohi no to the state for coercing its citizens into taking experimental and ineffective vaccines. Ohi no to public health officials for their smugness and callousness and lack of transparency. Ohi to hospital administrators who are firing doctors and nurses for exercising their fundamental rights. Ohi, no, to youth sports leagues for turning away children and parents who've weighed the risk benefits of vaccines and made a decision for their children based on reason and conscience and faith. Ohi, no, to virtually every politician, federal, provincial, and municipal in this country who have sided with tyranny who have politicized the pandemic. Ohi, no, we will not surrender. Ohi, no, we will not submit. Ohi, no, we will not cower or bend a knee or comply. Ohi, 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 no.
1: How do we determine what is true, what is false, and what is misleading?
4: Fact check this. Something else we need to say ohi to no, is the willful blindness of our politicians and our public health officials when it comes to natural immunity. Study after study shows that natural immunity from a prior infection is tenfold, 20-fold times more robust than from vaccines. So our federal, provincial, local governments continue to double down on vaccine mandates. And now there's this new study by the Yale School of Public Health offering the latest evidence that, again, the immunity acquired by COVID-19 infection is superior, many, many, many times more powerful than the immunity from vaccination. Add to this another 91 studies with the same conclusion, which have been compiled by Dr. Paul Ilias alexander and several other prominent colleagues. He says we should not force COVID vaccines on anyone when the evidence shows that naturally acquired immunity is equal to or more robust and superior to existing vaccines. Instead, he says, we should respect the right of the bodily integrity of individuals to decide for themselves. He wrote this for the Brownstone Institute. Alexander is a former assistant professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario in evidence-based medicine and research methods and a former senior advisor for COVID pandemic policy at Health and Human Services. Alexander is charging that public health officials, the medical establishment and establishment media are quote, misleading the public with assertions that the COVID-19 shots provide greater protection than natural immunity. He notes that CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said in a statement published in October of 2020 in the British journal The Lancet, there is no evidence for lasting protective immunity to SARS-CoV-2 following natural infection. And the consequence of waning immunity would present a risk to vulnerable populations for the indefinite future, she said. But for more than a century, we have known that natural immunity confers protection against the respiratory virus's outer coat proteins and there's strong evidence for the persistence of antibodies. Somehow, Alexander says, the CDC recognizes natural immunity for chickenpox, measles, mumps, and rubella, but not for COVID-19. Alexander has compiled the list with the help of Dr. Harvey Risch of the Yale School of Public Health, Dr. Howard Temenbaum of the University of Toronto, Dr. Raman Oskuri of Fox Hall Cardiology in Washington, D.C., and our good friend, Dr. Peter McCullough, of the Truth for Health Foundation in Texas and medical consultant, Dr. Parvez Dara. On Tuesday, Dr. Marty Macri of Johns Hopkins University said his research team is leading a long-term study of natural immunity because the NIH and CDC are not doing it. They have $50 billion and and 30,000 employees, yet they can't seem to conduct one of the most important studies we need done to inform the public, McCary wrote on Twitter. I mentioned here in Greece and a number of other countries in Europe, if you have a document showing that you recovered from a prior infection and therefore have robust natural immunity, that's accepted, as is a negative COVID test, alongside a vaccine passport. So again, to quote Orwell from 1984, the medical establishment and our politicians are trying to memory hole what has been accepted science for a century, natural immunity from a prior infection. We can't let them get away with it. Oh, he, you know, it's funny. Just a few short months ago, we were being encouraged to go outside and bang on pots and pans as a show of appreciation and solidarity with healthcare workers, doctors and nurses. They were heroes. They were on the front lines in the battle against SARS-CoV-2. They were working incredibly long hours, often without sufficient personal protection equipment, PPE. Because gropey blackface shipped most of it to communist China. I guess he loves the communists in China more than he loves Canadians. Anyway, many of our nurses and doctors got sick from COVID. Most recovered. And of course, they now have natural immunity. And this was all before the vaccine Well, now, tens of thousands of healthcare workers across Canada are facing termination or discipline for not being vaccinated against COVID-19. This according to a review conducted by True North. Uh, Between September 28th and October 25th, 26,425 nurses, doctors, and other staff in the healthcare industry could be reprimanded for not obeying various COVID-19 mandates Instituted by their workplace or provincial governments. Some of the workers counted in the article have already been put on unpaid leave or fired. Now, here's the list. Again, this was compiled by our good friends at True North. 84 face termination at the London Health Sciences Center. 181 face termination at the University Health Network, although there is a temporary injunction there. 497 face regular testing at Saskatchewan's Health Authority. 1,350 face termination at Hamilton Health Sciences, 176 face testing or termination at Manitoba Health, 318 at the Ottawa Hospital. Get this, 5,512 face termination at the BC Ministry of Health, 2,663 face unpaid leave at New Brunswick's Horizon Health Network, 250 at Waterloo Region and Wellington County, on and on the list goes. Here's the big one 15,000 face suspension with the Quebec Ministry of Health. So, our healthcare system is so fragile, it's in, in such jeopardy because of the pandemic, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, uh, that we can afford to fire tens of thousands of nurses. Does this make any sense? On what planet does this make sense? Pluto. It's a Mickey Mouse planet. Uh, Tony Heller will be here this hour as we push back against the cult of global warming and the crazy climate change bedwetters, and I'll speak with Anne Silvers, the author of a book about male victims of domestic abuse. But first, I mentioned True North earlier. Sue Ann Levy, a terrific journalist formerly with the Toronto Sun, has now joined forces with True North. She'll be here next to discuss how the city of Toronto's attempt to be woke discriminates against the city's residents. Stick around. Back with more in three minutes.
5: We're back as the Richard Sarrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 a.m.
4: Imagine for a moment you're North America's most ridiculous mayor, John Tory, or a member of his silly council, and you wanted to combat anti-black racism. What would you do? Maybe hire more police, crack down on crime? That would make sense. Or you could institute something called the Toronto Black Food Sovereignty Plan. What? I know, sounds ridiculous. And Sue Ann Levy thinks so too. She's a contributor to True North, an investigative journalist, and the author of Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Hey Sue Ann, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thanks for that uh, great intro, Richard. And I have to say, Underdog, Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker, one of the great book titles of all time, remind me to come back and and ask you about that. But first of all, what does a food sovereignty plan have to do with racism?
0: Uh, Darned if I know, I think that uh, it's uh, really just a giant make work project for an anti-racism unit at the at Toronto city hall, that's getting 1.5 million in funding per year. And I guess they have to find something to tackle, but if it were me, if I was part of that unit, I would be worried about uh, the shootings that are occurring in, um, you know, Toronto community housing uh, developments and, you know, the black on black crime, but Hey, you know, Food is uh, a low-hanging, shall we say, fruit. Is low-hanging fruit.
4: <laughs> well, uh, I guess we shouldn't expect much uh, else from our virtue signaling. I call him North America's most ridiculous mayor and his silly council. So they yeah. adopted this plan. What does the, the the Black Food Sovereignty Plan supposed to entail?
0: Well. You know, it's not going to get off the ground till next year. And the thing that concerns me is because I've seen runaway spending at City Hall for much of the 20 years uh, that I have kept an eye on it. And certainly during John Tory's term, the current mayor's term, uh, because he is a virtue signaler. So they, they haven't attached a budget to it. They will next year when they develop the budget, but they've already approved it. So that means that it's full steam ahead, and what it entails, from what I can gather, is putting together a conference to talk about the food needs of uh, the specific food needs of the Black population, how to get them culturally appropriate food, how to develop—they're uh, going to develop Black only only markets, farmers' markets. Uh, I want to see how that. Uh, unfolds and I suppose that, that they're going to go into grocery stores or talk about going into grocery stores where they feel that the produce is substandard in black areas. Now I, I have no clue like I said in the piece I wrote I have no clue whether the food is substandard in these grocery stores but I, I, I can't imagine that stores would not stock uh, the same sort of stuff if there's, say, uh, a grocery chain in one store or another.
4: Right, right. What is culturally appropriate food?
0: Well, I suppose that means, you know, stuff from Jamaican, from the islands, particular cuisine that, is, um, that certain Black populations enjoy. But, you know, we have not far from where I live in Toronto, there's little Jamaica. And there are all kinds of culturally appropriate shops. You mean to tell me that many of the Black people in Toronto who are of Jamaican descent, for example, or Somali descent or whatever, don't know where to find their favorite foods? I mean, frankly, this thing is so distasteful. You should put it that way. Pardon the pun. (laughs) But it's actually... Really patronizing yeah. to black residents because it assumes that they don't know how to find food on their own. They talked about extra policing. They allege that police
3: are. Uh, are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing? Hanging out in grocery stores where
0: black populations are in excess. I can't believe that our police force would have the time to even do that. I mean, it's the most ridiculous statement I ever read.
4: Right. You're right. And the pandering uh, note, I mean, this is paternalistic. It's taking this to a whole new level. I mean, you talked about produce being substandard. Listen, I shop at Food Basics. I find the the produce there substandard on a good day. So, uh, again, it does it sounds like they're just creating an industry for themselves and they'll have conferences and they'll hand out uh, pamphlets and 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 have meetings and so forth. Sue Ann Levy is with us, investigative journalist and a contributor to our good friends at True North, the author of Underdog Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. We'll take a quick time out and come back and uh, discuss further. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960. Back with more right after these.
5: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 a.m. It's The Richard Serrett Show.
4: Sue Ann Levy stays with us, investigative journalist, contributor to True North. We're talking about this Toronto Black Food Sovereignty Plan. This is a, uh, a recent initiative adopted by North America's most ridiculous mayor and his silly council. This is an effort somehow, if you can figure it out, to uh, combat racism. This idea of Black-only farmers markets, my word, if diversity is supposed to be our strength, they repeat like a cult-like mantra, why would they create a black black-only anything.
0: Well, this is the flavor of the month, unfortunately, or of the year at City Hall. And uh, as I pointed out in my True North article, this is racist. This is racist because if you create a black-only farmer's market and only blacks are uh, able to come to it, what does that say to the other populations of the city? And I might add that there's about, the population of Toronto is only about 9% black. There's a far greater Asian, South Asian population. And this has become sort of like a niche industry at City Hall, perpetuated by our allegedly woke mayor and the crazy people who surround him. And, you know, it makes absolutely no sense, but they've responded to a very vocal minority. And unfortunately, by creating this anti-racism, anti-Black racism unit, sorry, Uh, You know, I had to get the right phrase. They they have to prove that they're doing something, and this is this is what they've produced
4: if they're not um renaming streets and tearing down statues uh they're creating black only farmers markets speaking of which can you give us an update on if you know what's happening with this renaming of of streets they're going to get rid of Dundas Square and Dundas Street which is so tragic because Dundas was one of the good guys he was a progressive he was a, an abolitionist a great ally of um, Wilberforce and introduced the petition in the British Parliament to to abolish slavery where are we at with that? Is that going ahead, full steam?
0: Well, that's all gone silent, but I don't, don't underestimate the bureaucrats that they're working behind the scenes. Again, a product of the anti-Black racism unit and perpetuated by a vocal minority, a very vocal minority. The sad thing, Richard, is that our allegedly woke mayor and his, the silly people who surround him respond to this nonsense. It makes absolutely no sense. I think what's going to happen is that they're going to let an election go by. And then if whomever, Tory or whomever John Tory gets back in, uh, they'll push it. I, I don't think much is going to happen in the next little while. I mean, there's a lot that needs to be done behind the scenes. Unfortunately, a lot of money is being spent probably preparing things, preparing to make the name change. But like I said, if you don't hear anything, don't assume nothing's being done because I guess the underworked bureaucrats at City Hall, who can't repair potholes, who can't repair sidewalks, who can't get the streets looking good and free of potholes, are busy doing all these virtue signaling activities behind the scenes.
4: I can't believe they're wasting their time and energy. Well, I can. But when, as you say, the city, it's starting to look like or seem and feel like New York under Ed Koch back in the 70s. It's just gritty and grimy and dirty and it's being hollowed out it's quite tragic what's happening
0: richard it makes me very sad i went to new york for the weekend a couple weeks ago and it was so full of life and lights. of broadway were back on people are walking around i go downtown in toronto post-COVID. And it's like a ghost town. And it makes me very, very sad to see what this council and this mayor have done to the city. Construction everywhere. It's a mess. The streets are a mess. Drug addicted people wandering around. Um, I, I can't say enough about uh, how disappointed I am in my adopted city and, and, and the council and the mayor who have made it so.
4: This is their legacy. So, Anne, I got to ask you, I know it's been out, I think, about five years now, 2016, Underdog, yeah. Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Just tell us a little bit about the book and how we can get a copy.
0: Oh, well, it's still on Amazon. And it's still relevant even today because the things I wrote about back in 2016 when it was published, the council and how they behave towards their constituents and the issues and the fact that I'm not considered gay because I'm a self-loathing lesbian, because I'm conservative, those kinds of things still stand. I happen to think it's a good read. They're still getting action on Amazon and on my website, Levy.ca. And I'm going to now that I am uh, have departed from the sun, I'm going to be working on another book. So stay tuned.
4: That might be one of the greatest book titles of all time. Just based on the title, I'd read that book.
0: Well, I, I can't take credit for that. That was Random House, but they did a really good job packaging it, I have to say.
4: Underdog Confessions of a Right-Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. Sue Ann, always a delight. Thank you. Be well. We'll talk again.
0: You too, Richard. Take care.
4: Bye-bye. Wednesdays, of course, we push back against climate change alarmism. And Tony Heller, the founder of RealClimateScience.com, is next to, uh, well, help push back. Stay with us.
5: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
4: All right, it is hot out there. What better way to cool down than to start thinking about ice? Just visualize it. Ice miles and miles and miles of ice. We're going to talk about ice in Greenland, actually. And uh, Tony Heller joins us every Wednesday around this time to push back against climate change alarmism. He's the founder of realclimatescience.com. Hey, Tony, how are you, buddy? I'm good, Richard. How about yourself? Very well. So um, one of the things that the climate uh, bedwetters like to cry about is uh, Greenland and how Greenland is melting. The ice is melting. Uh, Greenland will be green again. Uh, What you have some interesting news on that front. Tell us about the ice in Greenland.
2: Well, you know, about 600 billion tons of snow on Greenland every year, Um, and then there's a period of time from during the summer, about eight weeks or so, or, or perhaps a little more, when the when the snow melts, um, and in order for Greenland to maintain equilibrium, um, you have to lose if you're going to get 600 billion tons of snow falling during the, you know for the other ten months of the year, then you have to lose that same amount of snow and ice every year. Otherwise, you know the Greenland ice would keep growing and eventually go all the way to the moon, or obviously that can't happen. But the point is, you have to lose as much snow every year as fall. Um, and, and so this year, it's been above average. Usually, usually, there's an excess of around 400 billion tons more snow falls than melts during the summer. This year, it's been higher than that. There's uh, a fairly large excess of snow fell on Greenland's. Um, over the past 12 months, and so it's a, it, the, the Greenland surface has gained about 450 billion tons of snow over the past year. Um, and but there was one a few days last week where a lot of you know, a lot of snow melted, and a climate alarmist got picked up on this and got hysterical about it. Say Greenland's melting, Greenland's melting. But the reality is that the surface mass balance of Greenland is above average, and it has been for three of the last five years. And and one of the other two years, it was almost exactly average. So Greenland has been gaining, Greenland surface has been gaining ice over the last five years. But that doesn't suit the propaganda, so they keep lying about it. You keep the press keeps lying about it, and they'll cherry pick one warm day or another worse than snow melt. So, it, it, right, what they're offering is up is the
4: actual what they're, what they're they're doing. They're offering up the actual inversion of truth. They're 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 giving us the 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 opposite of the reality. They're saying that Greenland is melting, and yet you say the the surplus uh, snow and ice. Um, is several hundred tons. It's uh, 700, how many tons? Yes. Seven hundred million
2: uh, well, tons? This year, so, this, year, this year, the surface has gained about 450 billion tons. 450 billion. Now, All right. But, there's, but but then there's the other thing that happens in Greenland is that the, the, the snow accumulates on the surface. This forms glaciers. And then the glaciers flow down into the sea and form icebergs i like the one which sank the Titanic in 1912, right? Yes, it yes. one of these giant, and that's how, and that's, how, so those two mechanisms are how Greenland maintains balance. One is that you get some melting off the surface, but most of the ice loss is caused by glaciers flowing down into the sea and calving off icebergs, giant icebergs. And so what, what, the other thing that climate alarmists do is they go there and they take pictures of icebergs calving off into the sea and they and they use this as evidence of climate change when in fact icebergs calving into the sea is an indication that the glaciers are growing rather than that they're shrinking
4: all right tony you've got to take a time out stay with us we'll come back we'll talk about uh, some ice some more tony heller founder of realclimatescience.com don't go away
5: back to the conversation on the richard sarah show news talk saga 960
4: a.m all right tony heller stays with us you are a treasure tony um helping us push back against climate change alarmism we appreciate everything you do and uh people really need to check out your website realclimatescience.com realclimatescience.com and uh you can check out tony's very powerful well-produced videos as well on youtube and newtube heller h-e-l-l-e-r tony heller so let's stick with the um the theme of ice And uh, if you go to realclimatescience.com, you've uh, compiled a a list of headlines here going back to to 2007. And of course, every every few years, the experts, quote, unquote, are predicting uh, that the ice is disappearing in the Arctic. It's going to be ice free by 2007. And then it's going to be ice free this year in 2008. Could all Arctic ice be gone by 2012 and now Tony, they've moved the goalposts. Now they've really moved them down the road. They're saying the Arctic Ocean will be ice free in the summer sometime before twenty fifty.
2: Yeah. That's you know, when when Al Gore got his um received his Nobel Prize He very solemnly, it's clear that the Arctic was going to be ice-free by 2014, and uh, the BBC predicted in 2007 that the Arctic would be ice-free by 2013. There's actually more. Arctic ice now than there was on this date in 2007, the year when BBC made that prediction. So this goes on and on. I'm James Hansen, NASA's James Hansen, who started the global warming scare before Congress. Um, He predicted that the Arctic would be ice-free between 2013 and 2018. Uh, Sierra Club Canada predicted, said the Arctic will be ice-free, in 2013, um, yeah, I, I've, yeah, I've got a whole list of these. Um, and now the, the latest prediction is that the Arctic will be ice-free in 2050. So wow, they're really, ice, they're really hedging their bets.
4: They're really hedging their bets, Tony. Arctic,
2: well, well, they have to. Arctic sea ice right now is, is the highest for the date in seven years, and it's higher than most of the last 15 years. So we're actually seeing an increase in Arctic ice now. Um, so they're yeah they're not doing too well with their forecasts. So they're getting back. They they made the mistake of making forecasts which were easily provable that they were wrong in the past. But if you go back and you make predictions. Forty years in the future, nobody's going to remember them. in the nineteen fifty In the nineteen fifties, in nineteen fifty eight, actually on this date in nineteen fifty eight, August, I nineteen fifty eight. Two U.S. submarines surfaced at, or, or at least one surfaced at the North Pole in, in open water. And the New York Times ran an article on that about that, and they said that. Arctic was losing ice very rapidly. The ice was very thin; it was only two meters thick. And that there were, and they discussed the public misconception. People believe that there's very thick. This was People believe that our ice in the Arctic is very thick. But it's not. It's a very thin layer. And now here we are same date in 2011 there's 2 meters of ice at the north pole where this submarine surfaced in 1958 and there really hasn't been any change in the thickness of Arctic ice since 1958 and in that and in that same 1958 article in the new york times they predicted that Within the lifetime of their children, people would be sailing across the North Pole in an ice-free Arctic. So this has been going on forever and a hundred years ago people were making predictions that the Arctic was going to be ice-free soon. If you go back to, to the time when Stonehenge was built, the Arctic actually was ice-free. It's the Danish geologic survey or the Norwegian geologic survey. I don't remember which one. has done a study showing that the Arctic was probably ice-free around the time Stonehenge was built. And at that time, um, You know, 5,000 years ago, trees in Canada grew all the way to the edge of the Arctic Ocean. You can find fossilized tree stumps all the way to the edge of the Arctic Ocean from 5,000 years ago. And now the tree line in Canada is 100 kilometers further south. And that means that there was no permafrost at that time. The Arctic was ice-free. Um, And and this was at a time when carbon dioxide levels were much lower. So all all these superstitions about the Arctic, none of them have anything to do with science. Um, It's just a way to demonize. It's hysteria. It's a way to demonize fossil fuels. And it has nothing to do with science or history. And the other thing I should point out, too, is that the Arctic was ice-free 5,000 years ago for an extended period of time. And the polar bears survived. So you know we've always heard that polar bears need ice in the summer, but it's not true. The polar bear population around Hudson Bay um, survives three months of ice-free conditions every single year, and they're doing just fine. You know, yeah, church, I love those it,
4: photographs that, where they'll they'll show uh, a uh, a polar bear on an ice floe, and they'll say, "You see the melting ice, and these bears are stranded." No. No, Sherlock, polar bears are excellent swimmers. (laughs) They swim out to the ice flows.
2: And and how does the Hudson Bay polar bear population survive and thrive like it's doing now when there's no ice in the Hudson Bay every year for three months? These people are just making stuff up. Exactly. Well, they're really...
4: They're really starting to ratchet up the fear. Uh, I mean, I know they it's been pretty bad, but now they're really I don't know if they're in panic mode because they're realizing that, you know, nothing seems to be uh, coming to fruition in terms of their predictions. But now the headlines are, you know, shock study reveals experts, you know, say uh, that even if we even if we meet our emission cutting goals, this is still going to happen uh, pretty soon. I mean, I, I mean, at what point one has to ask um are are, are, are there predictions going, you know, continue to fail and people are finally going to wake up and say, you know what, this is enough of this chicken little stuff. This just isn't happening. When is it? When is that time going to come?
2: Yeah, I don't know. You know, you know what the best climate story for me today, though, was, you know, on his first week in office, Biden shut down oil and gas exploration in the United States. right? And he shut down the Keystone Pipeline from Canada. And yes. today. Biden is asking OPEC to increase oil production. You know, the U.S. was energy self-sufficient when Biden took office. He shut down exploration, and now he and now we're running short of oil. And he's asking OPEC to increase production. So what he did was he he moved production from the United States and Canada to OPEC. There you um, go. Which makes you wonder who, who who financed his campaign? It was probably OPEC paying.
4: There you go. That's that's right up there with uh, buying solar panels made in China that are that are manufactured using coal-burning plants. Tony, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and we'll talk again next week. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Tony Heller, founder of RealClimateScience.com. All right, stick around. There's more to come. Hour two of The Richard Serrett Show coming up, another edition of Heroes and Villains. Plus, I'll speak with an author of a book about abuse of men by women. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
5: The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960
4: AM. Hour two, here we go. Coming up this hour, Ann Silvers is the author of Abuse of Men by Women. It happens, it hurts, and it's time to get real about it. Ann's a counselor, relationship coach, and analyst living in Washington State. uh, Men can be on the receiving end of an abusive relationship. Uh, It could be from an emotionally abusive girlfriend, a physically abusive wife, or a female partner who's demanding, controlling, manipulative, or bullying. Uh, There are something like seven forms of partner or or spousal abuse. Anne's book really shatters the silence surrounding partner abuse, where the target of the abuse is a man and the source of the abuse is a woman. And it it challenges the common perception that domestic violence and other types of, of partner abuse only happen to women. It's just not true. And we need to talk about it. Uh, You know, I'm getting email from listeners and they're asking, hey, Richard, where is the German word of the day? And where are all those cringy dad jokes? And where is the B or not the B? Those are those are regular features on the program if you're new to the Richard Serrett show. But those are features that I do when Lou is here. Lou Skeezus, the irascible but lovable Lou. And he's not here because I'm in Greece until November the 9th, and uh, there's a seven-hour time difference, and I'm pre-recording the show earlier in the day here, and Lou is, how how should I say this? Lou is all about live radio, and I get it. He's right. Quite frankly, uh, it it wouldn't work trying to pre-record my chats and uh, the German word of the day with Lou. It wouldn't have the same... Spontaneity or the same energy. I, I always prefer live radio over pre recording interviews. However, it is what it is until I get back to my home studio in Thornhill and start broadcasting live again on November the 11th. Uh, I'm going to need at least a day once I land to deal with the jet lag. Actually, you know what they say you should allow? I think it's one day for every hour of time zone difference. And since Greece is seven hours ahead of the Eastern time zone, it's going to take me at least a week to get back to normal. Who am I kidding? Get back to normal. I never was, never will be. You either die a hero
5: or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Heroes and villains.
4: Uh, Today's hero is Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who signed legislation Monday... completely banning biological boys from competing on girls' sports teams and vice versa. So the boys will play with the boys, and the girls will play with the girls. And the legislation prohibits transgender athletes from playing on public school sports teams that align with their gender identity rather than biological sex. And the law will take effect in January and applies to all public schools, including universities. The state of Texas previously prohibited transgender athletes from participating on sports teams that aligned with their gender gender identity, but it allowed for exceptions if the student legally changed their birth certificate. The new legislation removes that option. Why should it make a difference if you change your birth certificate? A biological male is a biological male. A biological female is still a biological female. Republican state representative Valerie Swanson, who sponsored the bill, said during a committee hearing, it's very important that we protect everything that women have gained in the last 50 years. I wholeheartedly agree. Equality Texas, Equality Texas, a statewide political advocacy organization, criticized the new law in a tweet calling it a form of discrimination. Of course they would. Your gender identity has nothing to do with participating in sports. How you align in terms of your gender identity, that's your business. And you're right. Your physical abilities, your physical advantages have everything to do with sport. And if you identify as a woman, even though physically you have male physical attributes, then you must play against other boys or men. It's really that simple. And we get into this uh, every Thursday when we get gender critical and push back against radical gender ideology. Linda Blade will often join us from COSBAR. That's the Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights Organization. She wrote a book or co-authored a book along with Barbara Kay titled Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. We see girls participating in high school athletics being pushed aside because they're being forced to compete against biological males, boys, Adolescent boys who have gone through puberty and on average young males are physically much stronger and faster, more powerful than girls. This is the science. It has always been the science until suddenly it was decided we should ignore the science. And it is only a matter of time before a biological male athlete gets into a boxing ring with a female and she's killed. Or a karate competition. This will end badly. So Texas Governor Greg Abbott is a hero simply by doing something that is mere common sense. That's, that's all it takes these days. It doesn't take much to be a hero. Do the obviously correct thing. That's it. That's all it takes. Stating the obvious becomes a heroic act. So I guess under that criterion, Tucker Carlson is also a hero here he is blasting the fda's emergency use authorization for the pfizer vaccine in 5 to 11 year olds have a listen just a few hours ago an
6: fda panel issued emergency youth authorization for the pfizer vaccine this one aimed at children ages 5 to 11. mandates for children of those ages will soon follow no question so what does the science say about this Well, it turns out that children of those ages are more likely to die of the annual flu than they are from COVID. Of the 73 million children in this country, fewer than 700 have died of COVID. CDC data show that among the relevant age set, children 5 to 11, there have been nearly 2 million COVID cases, but only 138 deaths total. From March through October of last year, at the height of the pandemic, a child had a one in a million chance of dying from COVID. Right now, by contrast, kids are 10 times more likely to die of suicide. That's the actual pandemic raging among young people. Meanwhile, there are reasons to think that mandating vaccines for kids could be dangerous to them. Pfizer still has not conducted meaningful clinical trials on young people. According to Pfizer, quote, long-term safety of COVID-19 vaccine in participants five to 12 years of age will be studied in five post-authorization safety studies. In other words, improve our drug, Make it mandatory for small children, and then we will tell you whether or not it's safe. According to the Substack TechnoFog, which is run by a brilliant attorney called Travis Miller, Pfizer previously announced that vaccine side effects for small children are, quote, generally comparable to those observed in participants 16 to 25 years of age. So what does that mean exactly? Well, it means the potential for many new cases of myocarditis among small kids in order to protect an age group that is not at risk in the first place from covid Once again, this is lunacy on the merits, according to the science. And people around the country are starting to figure that out.
4: Okay, so we have two heroes. How about today's villain, you ask? Well, how's this for villainous behavior? Shocking recordings of Mayo Clinic Scottsdale and Banner Health System Hospital executives have been released by an attorney on the Legal Advisory Council of Truth for Health Foundation. It's an Arizona public charity. And these executives, hospital executives, were discussing coordinated efforts to restrict fluids and nutrition for hospitalized COVID patients and to suppress all visitations for COVID patients. The COVID protocol hospital physicians must follow in lockstep across the U.S. appears to be the implementation of the 2009-2010 Complete Lives System developed by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel for rationing medical care for people older than 50. Dr. Emanuel, who was the senior White House health policy advisor for President Obama, has been advising President Joe Biden about COVID-19. He stated in his classic 2009 Lancet paper, quote, when implemented, the complete life system produces a priority curve on which individuals aged between roughly 15 and 40 get the most substantial chance, whereas the youngest and oldest people get chances that are attenuated. Attenuated? Attenuated. That means rationed, restricted, or denied. Denying medical care, which commonly leads to premature death. In 2021, whistleblower doctors, nurses, attorneys, patient advocates, and journalists have exposed egregious hospital abuses, neglect of patients, and denial of vital intravenous fluids and basic medicine to hospitalized COVID patients across the United States. The Complete Lives Protocol apparently derives from the 1990s UK National Health Service, Liverpool Pathway, which in effect constituted euthanasia. So now we see this malevolent manifestation in the COVID protocol, age-based rationing, is happening every day on COVID units in hospitals in the United States, maybe in Canada, I don't know. The overwhelming majority of COVID patients are older, so people over the age of 50, when, according to Ezekiel Emanuel's plan, they are not worth the use of medical resources. These are the death panels we've heard so much about. The complete live system and the COVID protocol, both are pathways leading to suffering and premature death mainly of older Americans. They achieve the government's goal of reducing Medicare costs. At the same time, hospitals make untold extra millions with extra incentive payments for COVID patients during their tortured path to death, while they are chemically and physically restrained and isolated from families, pastors, priests, and rabbis. We're hearing about these unconscionable hospital violations of human rights, including even violations of the Geneva Convention, which were established in the Second World War to prevent abuses of prisoners. And now they're occurring daily across the United States. Patients are denied adequate fluids and nutrition, as well as vitamins. Hospitals are using law enforcement to deny access to hospital grounds for family and advocates. So Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, President Obama's White House Health Policy Advisor, the creator of this heinous COVID healthcare protocol and rationing of healthcare is today's villain. We'll talk about men who are abused by women when The Richard Serrett Show continues, right after these.
5: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk,
4: Saga 960 AM. In her book, Abuse of Men by Women It Happens, It Hurts, and It's Time to Get Real About It, Ann Silvers, provides a roadmap for men and women looking to help their brothers, fathers, sons, and friends who are being abused by women or teach them how to avoid getting pulled in by them. It's a call to action for professionals, police officers, ministers, counselors, teachers, and all people who are willing to see what's really going on. Anne, welcome to the program. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks for having me.
4: So you suffered abuse at the hands of a man. So one might ask, why then write about male victims of abuse?
1: Because all abuse matters and and I care about it all. And I think that there's lots of discussion about women being abused by men. There's a real void of recognition that the flip side is also occurring and it's harmful to the men it's happening to, to the children who are witnessing it. And even the women who um, are doing it.
4: Why is that? Why does. Male abuse at the hands of women get short shrift.
1: Great question. I actually was asked this question so often recently that I did a blog post about it, and I came up with eight reasons why we have this tendency to not recognize the abuse of men by women. So one is it. One thing is we tend to look at things and you know with a polarized view, an either or view, which then is like. Men are bad, women are good. Men are liars, women are truthful. Uh, women are victims, men are perpetrators. This this real black and white view of things makes it hard for us to see that. The reality is everything belongs on a continuum or most everything belongs on a continuum between those polar opposites. And most individuals are gonna fall somewhere in the middle of the continuum. So that's one thing. Another thing is there's a lot of people who are afraid that if we give airtime to the reality of women abusing men, that somehow we're detracting from or we're taking something away from discussion or recognition of sometimes men abuse women. So there's that. There's the whole pendulum swing kind of argument that men got away with abusing women. So now it's payback time. And I really think that we are, we can be above that if we choose to and find a more balanced view that is healthier. There's also a belief that a man, a woman can't really hurt a man. And that's not based in reality. That's, um, that's cultural bias. And that if a man got hit by a woman or abused or demeaned in some way by her, he must've deserved it is another thing that gets in the way.
4: Let's talk about what male abuse by women, what it looks like, how does it differ from female abuse by men?
3: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: The vast majority of the time, it looks very similar, at times exactly the same. So all, we're talking about all seven forms of partner abuse. So physical abuse, which does happen uh, female to male. Uh, we're also talking sexual abuse, which does happen female to male. Um, and then the ones that are easier for people to sort of recognize, which would be verbal, emotional, psychological, financial, legal, and spiritual.
3: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
4: When uh, a woman physically abuses a man, one, one would say, well, typically on average, men are physically stronger, they're more powerful. So how does, how does that abuse manifested? Did, do women tend to use weapons, objects?
1: That's one way. There are quite a few ways that a woman can overcome the size differential. Um, And you you bring up a really good point. And I think that this is one of the things that blocks recognition that this is happening. This uh, idea that, well, a woman can't really hurt a guy because she's smaller. But I know a lot of large men who have been brutalized, physically brutalized by short wives and girlfriends. So they can, one of the ways is a surprise attack. So coming up from behind. Uh, One man I talked to, his wife had a pattern of coming up from behind him, jumping on his back and scratching him, punching him. Being attacked in your sleep. I talked to a number of men who have been attacked in their sleep. Uh, Being attacked while you're driving is another one where you can't really, you know, some condition where you can't easily fight back or resist. Um, So that's one way. Another way is weapons, as, as you described. Another way is getting other people to join in. Actually, one man talked about that not only does it did his wife hit him, but she engaged her um, teenage sons from an from an earlier marriage to also hit him throwing things, you know, you can throw from a distance with quite, you know, and we even you know, one of the things that that really is disturbing about the issue of of women abusing men is culturally we have not only accepted it but we are we make caricatures of it we find it funny so the the caricature of a woman with a frying pan coming up behind a guy you know in in reality that actually utilizes a number of the ways that women can overcome their their size differential surprise attack and using using a weapon
4: all right. And we'll uh, step away for a quick timeout and come back and uh, discuss further abuse of men by women. And Silvers, my guest, stay with us. The Bull
5: Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show News Talk Saga, 960 a.m.
4: And Silvers is with us, the author of Abuse of Men by Women. It happens, it hurts and it's time to get real about it. You sort of addressed this earlier, but let me just come come back around to it. And that is how you respond to someone who might say that a a woman who is, and let's put physical abuse aside for a moment, but a woman who is overly demanding or controlling or even emotionally abusive of her male partner, that that does not compare to physical abuse by a man of a woman.
1: So I think what you're saying is that uh, people argue that uh, it's not so important to care about women abusing men because we, what we really need to just care about is the physical abuse of women by men. Well, to me, again, it, it all matters. I, I care about physical abuse of women by men, and I care about physical abuse uh, of men by women and all the other forms of partner abuse. I don't think it's an either-or competition.
4: One of the, the issues that women face, and perhaps it's not as prominent as it once was, but that is a woman was, felt trapped that if she was in an abusive relationship, she might not have the financial means to live on her own. Is that the same for men?
1: It certainly can be, yes. And we have um, such a dire lack of resources for men who want to flee and uh, physically abusive relationship with a woman there's uh very very few if down to none uh shelters for men and their children um a man could be financially dependent on a woman or there could be other con- you know, financial constraints that that make it very difficult for him to have a separate household um yeah there's a lot of similar factors What
4: are the statistics concerning men being abused by their women? How prominent is it? Do we have any data?
1: There is data that bounces around. Um, I have a hard time. I don't know what to believe in many ways. I think that um, the one that I, I lean toward is kind of a loose one uh, because I think exacting numbers are hard to come by and, and believe. So the, The loose one that I've heard um, is about a third of the time uh, men are the instigators in domestic violence in about a third of the time, women are the instigators in domestic violence and about a third of the time it's mutual and i think it's really important to bring up the mutual aspect of things is i it took me a while as a counselor to figure out when i was trying to look at a couple and think well who's doing what to who here you know who who should really be making the big changes uh, where do i direct my help and then i'd realize oh they're both they're, you know they're both doing it to each other so that can happen and it can be that it's very very innocent on one person's part and the other is really the reason why uh, abuse is happening
4: and how prominent is it how many men report being abused in some way by their their female partner
1: so i've seen numbers where uh, they say one in three women are claiming um to have experienced domestic violence in their life and i've seen a stat that's one in four men claiming they've had domestic violence. You know, they've been targeted domestic violence in their life. Uh, I saw a different one that was one in seven men. I, you know, I, I really, I have a hard time with the stats. I think that often they've very much broadened what they're calling domestic violence. Things that I would call partner abuse, certainly, but maybe not domestic violence. So I, as I say, I, I have a hard time knowing um, where the real stats are.
4: Are men likely to be believed by police if they report domestic abuse?
1: No, they're unfortunately not. I I think that there are pockets that I hear about where it's better. It's where it's improving. Um, And then I'll hear another story that's just awful, where a man, um, a man who I'll, I'll tell you a story. There was a man that called contacted me. Uh, a recent story where he had over years been physically abused by his wife. He kept um, believing she was going to get help. She lied about getting help. Things didn't change. Um, Eventually it got so bad that he retreated to a room uh, with his children um, one evening to get away from her physical attack. She, in the meantime, uh, hurt herself and then called the police and claimed that he had attacked her and the police arrested him.
4: I'm sure that's quite common.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: All right. We'll uh, take another time out and and come back, discuss further abuse of men by women it happens it hurts and it's time to get real about it back with more of the richard sarah show in three minutes don't go away
5: just having a little chin wag on the richard sarah show news talk saga 9:60 a.m
4: we're back with ann silvers she's a counselor relationship coach author and uh, has been educated in the subject of partner abuse through academic study, personal experience, being the target of abuse by a partner, and by talking to and working with many women and men who are abused by and or are abusing their partner. You write about how men can avoid falling into the trap of an abusive relationship. What are some of the telltale signs for a man that he might be in an abusive relationship? What are some of the red flags?
1: So I think number one is recognize it's possible. So I think we really set men up for being snared by an abusive woman because we're we're pretending it doesn't happen. So that's number one. Educate yourself. Uh, Read my book so that you can understand uh, what could happen and recognize then you can help help yourself recognize the red flags. And then when you see red flags, really consider them, take, you know, take them seriously. And if you have somebody supportive that you can open up to and talk it through, you know, try and get another view on, on what might be happening.
4: Can you share what some of those red flags are?
1: So it kind of depends on what sort of abuse we're talking about. Certainly if a woman hits you, that should be the end. Uh, If it's early in the relationship, don't mess around, just just exit, move on. If she is demeaning to you or to other people, sometimes certainly a person will try and put their best foot forward in a new relationship. We all kind of do that. When it gets very manipulative, uh, I call it dating guy and dating girl where somebody has put on a really false persona in order to snare somebody. And, and so being able to watch out for any markers that somebody is not, doesn't really seem to be the person that they try to present to you and take those things seriously. You know, like, look at how do they treat a server in the restaurant? How, you know, how are they treating other people? What kind of relationship do they have with their family? Do they introduce you to their, their friends? Or do you just hear glorious stories about how wonderful they are? Because uh, sometimes people will keep you away from the people who really know them well.
4: How about the controlling form of abuse? How does that manifest itself? There's manipulation, but then there is that we all engage into a certain extent, but then controlling that goes above and beyond. How does that exhibit itself?
1: Okay, so I think what you're saying is there's a sort of how in the world can a woman have power over a guy? I think that's kind of what you're asking. Um, So control could come in many forms. Control can come in... um, this price to pay for when you don't do what she wants you to do. The price could be, you get yelled at. The price could be, you get the silent treatment. It could be pouting that gets you back in line. Um, It could be her using sex to control you and that you'll get it when you're a good boy and you'll, you won't get it when you've done something she considers to be bad. Uh, Now, Having said that, that's very different than if, if you really do something that, that hurts her feelings and she just doesn't genuinely doesn't feel like having sex with you. Um, that's a different thing than when it's being used as a, as a controlling manipulative tactic. Um, a woman could use seduction to control and, and manipulate. Um, sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's, it's um, more aggressive like, like being hit or undermining your time with the kids if if you don't do what she wants you to do.
4: That's very nuanced, isn't it? Where do you draw the line between a form of manipulation that many of us probably engage in, in a marriage or some type of relationship, when it crosses over to abuse? Where do you draw that line?
1: Great question. I, I think this is a really important thing to talk about. And it's one of the things that makes it so confusing because it isn't black and white. So Everything that we might consider as having the potential of being abusive, every kind of behavior that has the potential of being abusive, could also be totally not abusive, you know, totally healthy. So I think each thing needs to go on, it's a, a continuum. One end would be totally healthy. One end would be extremely abusive. You know, we could put killing somebody, killing your partner on this continuum from totally healthy because you really did it in self-defense. And you really needed to use that measure in that circumstance to totally abusive, where you killed somebody with without having those circumstances. You killed your partner without having circumstances that were self-defense. And we could put yelling on a continuum from totally healthy to very abusive. So on the totally healthy side, you know, somebody yells, watch out for that truck. If They're going to step in front of a truck on the totally abusive would be this demeaning kind of yelling that happens over and over again. And then there'd be things on the, on the middle. We, we have to look at motivation as a key piece to deciding where does something land on, on this not at all abusive to abusive continuum. And so sometimes people just don't want to do that effort of figuring it out. And they prefer to look at things black and white. But the reality is it is nuanced, as you said.
4: All right, we'll take one final time out and Silver stays with us as we continue to discuss abuse of men by women. It happens, it hurts, and it's time to get real about it. Back with more in three minutes. Don't go away.
5: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
4: Silver stays with us for a few moments yet. She's a counselor, relationship coach, and author. The book is Abuse of Men by Women. It happens, it hurts, and it's time to get real about it. You mentioned that one of the reasons this doesn't get the attention it deserves is that it, it, it's viewed this whole domestic abuse discussion is is kind of a zero-sum game. If you're talking about men getting abused by women, you're detracting from women getting abused by men. So, have you received any pushback from women's groups who say exactly that or argue that you're detracting from the far more serious, more prominent issue of women who are abused by men?
1: So, I haven't had a whole group come against me. I, I always do, however, get some backlash pop up. Just on LinkedIn last week, I got... Yelled at, um, you know how people yell at you on social media with lots of exclamation marks and capital letters and things. By when I posted an interview that I had about the subject of uh, women abusing men, this and the guy who yelled at me was a counselor. That, uh, you know, kind of how dare I? And and so that sort of thing happens, yeah. And I knew that was going to be the case when I when I wrote the book.
4: So obviously, we have a long ways to go when you have counselors. Who are angry that you're drawing attention to this?
1: Yes, when I when I go speak to counselor groups, I get lots of uh, people very eager to hear what I have to say. Lots of nodding of heads, like they they get it. They see it They're, They welcome that we're talking about it. And invariably, I have somebody angry that I'm talking about the subject and, and feeling a need to come up to me afterwards if they haven't spoken up in the group. You know, sometimes they'll speak up in the group and they often bring up this pendulum swing thing. Men abused women for years and got away with it. And so they are deserving now of whatever they get.
4: Yeah, that's like an incredibly cynical Uh, way to look at things Uh, for men. And again, you know, I hesitate. We don't want to, we're not comparing the tragedy of one group versus the other, but I'm wondering for men, if there's also the added problem of the shame that they feel because they have been victimized because culturally men are supposed to be stronger. So not only are they being abused, maybe physically and emotionally, but also they feel the shame that they allowed it to happen.
1: Absolutely. 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 There's an extra layer of shame for men. And I feel like man law gets in the way of men recognizing what's happening to them, the culture recognizing what's going on and men speaking up and gets in the way of men getting help. So the man laws of don't talk, don't need help. You should be able to fix everything. We train guys, fix the car, fix the toilet, fix the problems. And they feel then that they shouldn't they shouldn't need somebody. They should be the fixer. And in an abusive relationship with a, with a woman, they, the guy often feels that they should be able to fix the situation. And, and I will say women who are in abusive relationships with a, with a man, or I also want to mention this can happen in same-sex marriages as well and, right. and relationships. But most targets abuse in a relationship often will, regardless of the gender, will often feel like I can fix this. I can fix this. I just haven't figured it out yet. And it's one of the things that keeps you stuck. And then the man law around, I shouldn't need help also gets in the way of men speaking up and getting help. And even and so they, they have a hard time recognizing what's happening to them. Like you say, there's shame around it. So they're embarrassed to uh, speak up and, so if a guy does come to you and shares this with you, be ready, be ready to be supportive and helpful.
4: Is it OK for men to defend themselves when they're being physically abused or could that lead to just further complications? Again, the the, the police may believe that the woman was being abused and that he was instigating the violence.
1: Correct. The, the, a guy could get into trouble, extra trouble, by defending himself. So. There was a hotline in the U.S. for uh, helping men who are being abused by women. It didn't last because of lack of funding, but they recommended that men try to roll up in a ball. So try try to get your back to a wall so that that can protect your back. Roll into a ball as best you can. Put your hands and arms over your head to try and protect your head. Trying to get into that defensive position in order to protect yourself. A man that I talked to who was beaten and choked and kicked in all kinds of ways, physically abused by his uh, former wife for 20 years, said that he would put his hands in his back pocket, back pockets, to not defend because he was afraid of hurting her. This is actually one of the ways that women get away that we talked a little bit earlier about how do smaller women get away with uh, physically attacking larger men that they're partners with. And one is that we train guys to not hit women. And, and that's a good training. We also should be training females to not hit males. And unfortunately that's not what we're doing. We actually have all kinds of cultural ways where we normalize women, slapping men and that's not okay.
4: How do you help men heal? How do you help men you know extricate themselves from that situation and maybe learn to trust again?
1: Well, that's a lot of questions there. <laughs> There's a lot of repair work that needs to be done if somebody comes out of an abusive relationship, whether that's a man or a woman who has been abused. And uh, with men, we have the extra layers of shame. We have extra degrees of difficulty in helping them debrief and understand what was happening to them. If a man is in an abusive relationship, it can be very hard to get through to him that this is what's happening and it's not okay. And so there is a lot of healing. Trust can be rebuilt. It takes time. I would not encourage anybody to jump out of one relationship and quickly into another uh, because you should debrief and figure out. How did you miss the red flags? What are the red flags? Look back and see. Oh, yeah, that thing happened early in the relationship. That was a red flag. Now I can see that in the future and and do that processing of what happened and the emotional healing as well.
4: Abuse of men by women. It happens. It hurts. And it's time to get real about it. How do we get a copy, Anne?
1: Thanks for asking. Uh, you can get it as an ebook from most online retailers. You can get it from Amazon in print and ebook, and also on my website, ansilvers.com. No E on Ann.
4: And how do we follow you on Twitter, Ann?
1: On Twitter, my handle is at Ann No E. Okay. No E on Ann. Thank you. Yeah. All
4: right. And thank you so much for bringing this uh, important topic to light.
1: Thank you for having me.
4: Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. What a crew. Thanks, guys. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. We'll push back against radical gender ideology. Plus, I'll speak with the vice president of a think tank who's written an open letter to Ontario Premier Doug Ford, challenging the premier over vaccine passports that are unjustified, unnecessary, and a harmful overreach with serious short and long-term consequences. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.